epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News & World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. Gastric, or stomach cancer, is one of the most malignant human cancers, ranking third as the most common cause of cancer death globally. East Asia has the highest incidence, and China in specific accounts for almost half of new cases of gastric cancer worldwide. If detected at an early stage, treatments can control and even cure the disease. Unfortunately, most of the time, gastric cancer is usually diagnosed beyond the early stage. But we've made exciting advances in treating advanced gastric cancer with targeted drugs that disrupt signaling pathways and destroy cancer cells. Not only that, but the immunotherapies have changed the landscape of gastric cancer treatments and are providing new hope for improvements in survival. On today's show, we'll hear from Dr. Sam Klempner. He's a specialist in oncology and hematology with a focus on gastric and esophageal cancers at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. He'll explain the risk factors for developing gastric cancer, how we can protect ourselves against this disease, and delve into current and future therapies that can prolong life. Aches and Gains is supported by Averitas Pharma, Daiichi Sankyo, and Heron Therapeutics. Dr. Sam Klempner is an associate professor of medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. He specializes in treating gastric and esophageal cancers and conducts clinical trials and research on new targeted medications and immune therapies. Dr. Klempner, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you, thanks for having me. Gastric cancer is the third most common cause of cancer death globally. What makes it so lethal? Yeah, this is, this is a great question. One of the biggest reasons that the fatality rate is so high is that outside of some countries like Korea uh, and Japan, where there are national screening programs, mm -hmm. the majority of patients don't present until they're symptomatic. Right. Um, and unfortunately, at the time of symptomatic presentations, the disease stage is relatively advanced. There's few to no symptoms in early stage disease. Um, in fact, in patients with small tumors, um, T1 lesions that are confined to the surface of the lining of the stomach, there, there's essentially no symptoms. Well, but now with respect to early stage gastric cancer, like stage one, how is the prognosis? Yeah, the, the prognosis and cure rates for stage one cancers are actually very good. Um, if you look at data from Asia in particular, where they capture many, many stage one cancers through um, programs. First, there's, there's two things. Mm -hmm. One, some of these patients can avoid the very large surgeries such as total and subtotal gastrectomies, which 
carry significant uh, morbidity and, and long-term complication. And a gastrectomy would be the total removal of the stomach. Subtotal gastrectomy would be a partial removal of the stomach. Yes, because some of these early cancers can actually be removed um, endoscopically through endoscopic submucosal dissections and endoscopic mucosal resections. Mm-hmm. In those um, countries, the five-year survival rates, which is a, a landmark term we often use to think about cure, are over 90% for stage one cancers. Well, I mean, that's really good. Uh, Sam, is pain a common symptom of gastric cancer? Abdominal pain in particular. Um, there's been some very large series looking at, say, like 20,000 gastric cancers when they presented. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the frequency of, of individual symptoms, um, about 60% of people will present with weight loss, and about 50% of people will present with some degree of abdominal pain difficulty or discomfort with swallowing. Yeah, I mean, that's a high percentage who present with pain. Yet, most patients actually end up seeing their primary care doctors before they end up seeing you. Is that right? Yes, that is the most typical story. And, you know, if a patient presents with weight loss or some uh, unfortunately nonspecific abdominal discomfort, you know, the first thought of, of any clinician is probably not gastric cancer. Right. So sometimes these patients go through, you know, workups, including laboratory evaluations for anemia, um, sometimes imaging, um, and additional studies like or, or therapeutic trials of proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers. And ultimately, without resolution on early interventions like that, it warrants Um, additional workup, and often it's the primary care who ultimately are making the referral um, Mm -hmm. to GI where the endoscopy is the, you know, gold standard for tissue diagnosis. Right, and then from there they end up seeing you as the oncologist. Gastric cancer uh, occurs more frequently in Eastern Europe, East Asia, like China, Russia, Japan, uh, and even South America, like Chile. What's the reason it's higher in those regions of the world? In U.S., there's around, you know, four cases per 100,000 individuals. Mm-hmm. And in, in Japan and Korea, it's, you know, in the 35 to 40 cases per 100,000 people. So it's like a tenfold increase in the prevalence rate. Right. One of the largest global risk factors is um, the infectious agent Helicobacter pylori or, or H. pylori. And the rates of gastric cancer often parallel the prevalence of um, H. pylori positivity, but certainly there are multiple other risk factors. Well, and we're definitely going to talk about H. pylori later on in the show. The data tell us that the incidence of gastric cancer is two times higher in men than women. What accounts for this gender discrepancy, Sam? (laughs) This this is definitely um, consistent with what's been observed for a while, and I don't totally understand it. It may be differences in some of the risk factors. Smoking and alcohol are, are sort of lesser risk factors, but certainly there may be gender differences there. Mm-hmm. There may be, you know, protective roles of some hormones um, that we're still trying to understand. Um, there may be higher, higher rates of obesity in, in men, um, than women, and certainly obesity is also considered a risk factor. Well, exactly. Over the last century, we've seen a decline in those diagnosed and dying from gastric cancer, but it seems like we're going to see more patients diagnosed with gastric cancer in the future. Is that due to an increase in the aging population? Uh, definitely, it's a disease of um, patients over 50 in general. Um, there's actually a notable rise in young patients, which is um, a phenomenon that's 
an epiphenomenon that's not yet totally understood, but uh, particularly young Hispanic women um, have been described in some epidemiologic studies as having um, substantially increasing rates, which is worrisome. Mm-hmm. Um, but there seems to be rising rates across um, some younger populations, which which may reflect um, risk factors that are changing as, as culture just evolves naturally. But Dr. Klempner, is there an overall risk factor that we should be aware of with respect to what puts us at risk for gastric cancer? Yes, definitely. Um, in basically, fundamentally, things that cause um, chronic irritation to the lining of the stomach mm-hmm. are essentially risk factors for gastric cancers. Okay, well, that's key then. Uh, you mentioned earlier higher rates of gastric cancer in younger people, and and actually it seems like younger people from high-income countries. Do we know why that is? A lot of that is probably the evolving habits of, of U.S. people, mm-hmm. particularly related to rising rates of obesity, um, you know, processed foods, fast foods, some of these high-salt foods that we know are associated with some increased risk of gastric cancer. And that's just been, you know, the natural migration of, of dietary choices in the U.S. Yeah, unfortunately. You mentioned risk factors for developing gastric cancer. The two main risk factors are, one, helicobacter pylori infection and a family history of gastric cancer. Let's focus on helicobacter pylori or H. pylori. Would you take us through, just briefly, how these bacteria change the lining of the stomach to cause stomach cancer? And by the way, the World Health Organization has classified H. pylori, the the bacterium H. pylori, as a definite carcinogen, that is, a group 1 carcinogen, which means that it does lead to gastric cancer. Not all H. pylori strains are the same. Some carry more what we call virulence factors. Mm -hmm. And uh, strains with these virulence factors basically set up shop in the epithelium, often in sort of the glandular crypt areas and they ultimately lead to chronic inflammation, which can drive towards uh, essentially a intestinal type, mm-hmm. uh, which resembles more gland forming under the microscope. And under the microscope, what we typically see are healthy cells that turn into metaplastic cells. That's a conversion of a healthy cell to another one that is not cancerous. From there, under the microscope, we then see cells turn into dysplastic cells. Those, though, are abnormal cells that are precursors to cancer cells, and then ultimately the cells become cancerous. Sam, since H. pylori is a major contributor to stomach cancer, should these bacteria be treated and eliminated in patients who have them? In areas where uh, H. pylori infection is endemic and extremely common, there have been sort of large-scale, almost national-level efforts to um, treat H. pylori as a public health mechanism to reduce the risk of gastric cancer. Mm-hmm. Most of this data comes from Asia, and there have been some high-profile publications suggesting that there is success to this strategy in, in well-selected patients, but it's really the people who don't yet have endoscopic changes who are deriving the most benefit in the U.S., One, we don't have a screening program, and two, our H. pylori rates are substantially lower. So I think there's not quite as much enthusiasm here to do that, although there are probably patients who would benefit. Mm -hmm. Now, how is it best diagnosed, that is, H. pylori infection? The gold standard is endoscopy and seeing the H. pylori bacteria on 
pathologic examination. There are some other diagnostic tests, uh-huh. um, including uh, breath tests, and there's some serum tests that look more at chronic, uh, have you been exposed in the past, and do you have antibodies? Uh-huh. But, you know, uh, something like two-thirds of the world population has H. pylori living in their digestive tracts, and yet most don't develop gastric cancer. It's a conundrum. W- what's the reason? Presumably this is related to things that we don't entirely understand, but often it relates to the H. pylori strain and whether it carries these virulence factors, how well you mount you know, an immune response to any developing dysplasia or, or early precancer lesions in the stomach. Those are probably the, the predominant reasons. Yeah, in fact, the research doesn't really point to the bacteria alone as the reason why stomach cancer actually develops. So it's likely numerous factors that you mentioned. Look, we're up for a break. When we come back, we'll talk about salt and salt-preserved foods as risk factors for gastric cancer. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Adveritas Pharma, leading the U.S. in non-opioid pain management for certain pain conditions, while continuously seeking to deliver innovations for patients to improve patient outcomes. Visit us at A-V-E-R-I-T-A-S-Pharma.com, an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo for cutting-edge treatments and resources, follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter at Dr. Paul Christo and like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. We're here with Dr. Sam Klempner. Sam is a hematologist oncologist who specializes in treating gastric cancers at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Sam, you know, I didn't realize that there are dietary risk factors for gastric cancer. And let's talk about salt and salt preserved foods that are risk factors. There are multiple studies that have been done that do suggest that high intake of salt and salt-preserved foods, salted fish and cured meats and salted vegetables have been classified as a risk factor for gastric cancer. Mm -hmm. There is maybe some actual synergy with H. pylori in terms of increasing the risk of an inflammatory response and inflammation in the stomach between salt and H. pylori. And then they sort of co-migrate with some of the other risk factors like um, these N-nitroso compounds that come in in smoked meat as well. Yeah. In in fact, in rodent studies, high salt intake damages the stomach mucosa, which is the lining of the stomach, and increases the risk of uh, carcinogenesis or cancer development. Now, you mentioned nitroso compounds. Should we be concerned about the link between nitroso compounds and gastric cancer? Essentially, these are these are components of things like vegetables and and potatoes. If taken excessive quantities, but most common, they are used as uh, food additives to help preservation. Um, some cheeses, some meats, um, and so essentially, they they're absorbed in the stomach and. They are associated, again, with inflammatory response in the stomach, and it's, it's probably the inflammation itself that's ultimately the risk factor for gastric cancer. Right. Now, the nitrates that we're concerned about are, one, those that are natural components of vegetables and potatoes, and two, those that are found as food additives. There are some epidemiologic studies that have shown an association, in fact, between diets that are high in fried food, processed meat, and alcohol and an increased risk of gastric cancer. Dr. Klempner, let's delve into alcohol. Is there a link between alcohol and gastric cancer? Because it doesn't seem particularly consistent in the literature. 
In fact, a European study suggested that daily wine intake may be protective. How do you feel about it? We don't generally think of alcohol as a major driver of risk factor for stomach cancer. We certainly think of it as a risk factor for cancers of the esophagus, particularly squamous cell that are much higher up in the in the GI tract. And the same can be said for some other beverages like very hot teas. Mm-hmm. But in the stomach, alcohol, I agree with you, has not reliably uh, been associated with an increased risk. And similarly, the protective effect of some other uh, things like wine or even caffeine is, again, kind of all over the map and a little hard to prove at the mechanism level. Yeah. But conceptually, people have thought about, you know, some of the anti-inflammatory factors in, in wine as maybe providing some level of protection. And what about excess body weight and gastric cancer? Yeah. Obesity is certainly a big problem and a risk factor for, for several cancers. Mm-hmm. And people who are um, have a BMI over 25 have, again, an increased risk, but not to the level of, say, H. pylori. Okay, well, that's good. So that association is not nearly as strong then. 18% of gastric cancer cases can be attributed to tobacco smoking. What should we know about this? And does the risk decrease with smoking cessation? Similar to alcohol, I think there have been um, studies where you take you know, 10,000 patients and you assess their lifestyle habits and dietary choices. And if you look at data from that and you see smoking does fall out as people who had a history of smoking had a, had a higher risk of stomach cancer, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not nearly to the same level as, you know, upper like head and neck and squamous esophageal and lung cancers where the probably is the direct effect of the smoke exposure. And also the good news is that If you stop smoking, there's a decreased risk of gastric cancer after 10 years of smoking cessation. When we come back from the break, we'll find out whether stomach surgery for bleeding peptic ulcers or even bariatric surgery increases our risks for gastric cancer. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Heron Therapeutics, whose mission is to improve the lives of patients by developing best-in-class medicines that address unmet medical needs. They aim to advance the standard of care for patients through therapies that bring together science and technologies with well-known pharmacology to deliver medicines that matter. Follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter at Dr. Paul Christo and like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. And we're back. Sam, does stomach surgery increase our risk of developing stomach cancer? Yes. Uh, definitely. So we, you know, as, as more people have undergone bariatric surgery or gastric surgeries for other reasons, like a bleeding peptic ulcer, and certainly there is a risk of gastric cancer for people who have a remnant gastric. So what's left over if you do a bypass or do a, a partial gastrectomy for a bleeding ulcer. Mm-hmm. This also is time-related. The farther you are from that bariatric surgery, the risk seems to be more in the, in the late periods. You know, the timing is probably like 10 or 12 years after the, the surgery where the risk is really starts to be. Again, it's probably related to chronic inflammation in this area, but I'm not an expert in that topic. Many of us are familiar with Epstein-Barr virus. It's the herpes virus that causes infectious mononucleosis. What's the relationship between Epstein-Barr virus and gastric cancer? This is an interesting one. EBV is a virus that you know causes mono and many of us are exposed to uh, at some point in our life it can 
generate uh, increased risk of, of several cancers, including some lymphomas. But what we generally think of is, uh, and this is a little more common in Asia than in the U.S., but probably around 5 to 10% of all gastric cancer is um, EBV-linked. Mm-hmm. And these cancers have particular features that usually clue you into this um, on a biopsy or under the microscope. They often have a lot of immune cells mm-hmm. because they're, they're recognized by the immune system. And then they have some very specific molecular features um, when we do like DNA sequencing. I read that a new study shows that uh, EBV or Epstein-Barr virus activates an oncogene and can lead to gastric cancer. An oncogene is, is a gene that has the potential to cause cancer, and in tumor cells, these genes are often mutated or even expressed at high levels. There's some type of association between gastric ulcers and gastric cancer. And, I mean, do gastric ulcers predispose us to developing gastric cancer? Definitely, definitely. And um, a lot of times, you know, gastric ulcers are a result of, of chronic H. pylori infection. So, there's certainly a linkage there, mm-hmm. but other reasons to have um, gastric ulcers, of course, can arise. And the presence of a gastric ulcer is a risk factor for a future gastric cancer. And it's, it's the same end pathway, which is you have an ulcer and there's a chronic inflammatory response to an open wound. And it's that chronic inflammatory response that probably ultimately increases the risk of cancer. Now, what if we're getting treatment for gastric ulcers? That is, say, with a histamine 2 receptor blocker, that is an H2 blocker, uh, ranitidine or Zantac, or even using a proton pump inhibitor like uh, Protonix, also known as pantoprazole. Uh, do they increase our risk of developing stomach cancer? It's safe to use them, and those are standard agents that we would use for the treatment of ulcers. Do we recommend some form of endoscopic reevaluation to ensure that the ulcer has healed and, and therefore hopefully the risk factor has been reduced? Yes, and if that's the, the case, then probably the risk of, of gastric cancer is relatively minimal. Mm-hmm. I think people who have unresolving gastric ulcers Sometimes that can actually hide a, a, a tumor itself, and, and you know we would advocate for biopsies of those regions of the ulcer, especially if it's not resolving. Well, absolutely. Now, Dr. Klempner, let's talk about pernicious anemia. That's the inadequate absorption of vitamin B12. It's not really commonly seen in the United States, but, but can this lead to gastric cancer? Yes, definitely. Pernicious anemia is really, again, related to atrophic gastritis um, commonly, and it's uh, a known risk factor, and there's some association with blood groups um, as well. It's one on those questions that everybody learns, but probably we don't see that often, and it's a pretty rare event. Right, right. It's rare in the United States for sure. And by the way, atrophic gastritis is, is chronic inflammation of the lining of the stomach called the gastric mucosa. Sam, let's now shift from risk factors for gastric cancer to protective factors against gastric cancer. And let's start with fruits and vegetables. There's definitely been multiple things that have been looked at, um, including fiber, fruits and vegetables. I've seen some claims, which I think is hard to prove that, you know, there's 30 or 40 percent reductions from people who have diets that are very high in fruits and vegetables. There's certainly some people who have said, okay, well, what exists at high levels in fruits. And vitamin C is one of those things that is a high level in in many fruits, and that might reduce the risk of some conversion of some of these other compounds like 
and nitrosic compounds into the inflammatory mediator, so potentially conferring that protective effect. Okay, listen, we're out of time, but Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This is great. Please join us for our next show when we talk more about what protects us against stomach cancer, what are the symptoms, and then finally, what are the treatments that can extend our lives. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Ty Ford. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.